0: That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born."
1: one of the scariest times in our life was when we lived in Southern California, and within a couple of months of being there, we lived through a wildfire. And it wasn't just any old wildfire season. There were no less than three wildfires burning around Escondido that summer. One to the north, one to the south, and one to the east coming through to the west. We found out that we were um, just outside the region they had called everyone to evacuate for safety. We were just one road beyond it, and so we decided we're going to move as well. Some folks in the church offered to put people up, and so we took them up on our offer, and uh, we looked around our flat, and we looked at our car, and we thought, what are we going to put in? What's going to go in there? Well, you know, there's children to put in, so make sure they get in. (laughs) There's clothes to put in and and nappies and other things and get the computer. Don't forget the passports and the visas. They matter when you're a resident alien in a foreign land. And we went. And it was quite a thing, quite a thing to think, if you could just have a few things, what will you grab and what will you take with you? Let me ask you, Christian, this evening, I'll ask you, anyone this evening, what things matter most to you? There are just a few things that you've got to keep hold of. There are just a few things that you're praying to God, Lord, as I begin to forget things, as time passes. Lord, may these things be especially clear in my mind and my heart and my soul. We've been working through First Corinthians as a church, and uh, we've covered all kinds of issues in the 14 chapters we looked at thus far. But this evening we come to chapter 15, and with the final few columns in the scroll that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he chooses to turn his attention in chapter 15 to what is most vital to the Corinthians— and what is most vital to every person here this evening. Because in chapter 15, Paul is going to address the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one whole chapter all about the resurrection. And he does that because the resurrection is being denied by some in Corinth. It's being forgotten in its central importance by others. And that is a big problem. Because whilst all truth matters, all of God's word is true and matters, some things are especially important. Some things are, as Paul says in this passage, of first importance to each one of us. Because without these things, you cannot be saved. Now, we don't live in days uh, where the resurrection is, I think, widely denied among evangelical churches or even in churches we live in days where we're thankful that these things are held true but we do live in days when we're in danger of forgetting what is most important let me give you three reasons why that's the case we live in days of information overload do we not you know where there's the internet and there's books and there's youtube and there's so much out there that's saying care about this And information overload means you can forget what matters most. We also live in days uh, where preachers uh, can be imbalanced. In our passion, as we often feel it, having spent a whole week in a passage, we can be so excited about particular truths that we've worked on through the week that we can make it sound in our enthusiasm that everything matters just as much as each other. But actually, there are some things that are of first importance. But thirdly, we live in days where churches can focus on some things that might matter, but are not essential. We live in days when churches can be taken up with what is topical and popular because the world wants to hear it. And so, friends, for all of those reasons, we come this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 And in verses 1 to 11, Paul tells us what is of first importance. He tells us where we should take our stand. He tells us what we should keep hold of as the Lord's people. And we're going to see three things this evening. The first is he says, you need to hold firmly to the gospel, verses 1 and 2. You need to hold firmly to the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, Paul begins by taking the Corinthians back to the point of their conversion. And he says in verse 1, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which implies they heard it, which you received, they understood it was true and embraced it, and on which you have taken your stand. And because you did those three things, you heard it, you received it, and you took your stand upon it, start at verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Now, just in those verses, Paul answers a question that we have very often about the Christian faith, and the question is this, what is saving faith? That was something of what Simeon was talking to us about this morning in the Bite-Sized True Spot in the morning service, and we saw that saving faith is not just hearing by knowing, it's not just agreeing and affirming it's true, it is more than that. It is resting upon these truths. It is standing upon these truths. It is saying, this is where I stand. This is where my hope is. It is to know the gospel. It is to receive it and believe it is true. And it is to take your stand on that truth. Standing on it means I stake my eternity on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for me. And maybe you're here this evening, and that's a question in your mind. What does it mean to have saving faith? Maybe children and young people, that's something you wonder about. What does it mean to have saving faith? And maybe you have heard a huge amount. Maybe you agree with everything you have heard. But if you have not taken your stand upon those things, you're not saved. Can I ask you this evening, have you taken your stand upon these truths? And it's so vital we do that because of verse 2. When we take our stand upon it, when we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, start of verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. So can I plead with you to turn from every other reason for confidence Don't say I'm trusting in Christ plus my works. Don't say I'm trusting in Christ plus my goodness. Don't say I'm trusting in Christ plus anything. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and in what he has done alone. And it's so important we do this because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. We we live in a world where so many things are crying out for our attention. We've got notifications on our phones. We've got adverts all around us. We've got people who say, come and support this cause. And in a world where so many things want our attention, it's easy to tune out and think that nothing really matters. But this really, really matters. Because you and I need salvation more than anything else. Jesus Christ could return this evening. Death could come to any one of us this evening. Would you be ready for eternity if it did? For me, I I grew up, and as a 16-year-old, I presented as a hardened atheist. But in all that presented to others, deep down in my heart... I could not give an answer to death and eternity. I could not explain where I was going. I wasn't confident. So let me ask you a very direct question this evening. If you do not make it home tonight, would you be ready for eternity? If Jesus Christ came tonight, would you be ready for eternity? Are you as settled that if you didn't wake up tomorrow, you would be safe for all of eternity? If you're not, keep listening. Keep listening because my goal this evening and Paul's intention this evening in this passage is that you might hear everything you need to hear so that all that is left is for you to receive it and take your stand. But tonight isn't just for those who need to stand here for the first time. If you look at verse 2, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And I do not want anyone here to believe in vain. My prayer and my plea is that we might all have a faith that is saving securing our eternity. But there is a warning in verse 2 for each one of us. What's the warning? The warning is exactly the same warning Jesus gave to us, that there are some who will appear to believe outwardly, but their lack of endurance in holding fast to the truth shows they never took their stand upon these things personally. In the last few months, we heard parables in the morning service over the summer from matthew's gospel and in the last few weeks we've been hearing parables in the evening series as well and think of the parable of the net what happens the word of the gospel goes forth people become seemingly members of the kingdom of god but in the final reckoning they never really believed isn't that frightening It is possible to backslide, to genuinely come to faith, to stray from the Lord and return to him, but the true believer always comes back. It is also possible to appear to believe, but never have genuine faith. Please do not think, please do not think that just because you believed in the past, and you stood there in the past, you're okay. The question is not, do you have a testimony of the past? The question is, do you have a testimony that began in the past, goes forward into the present, so that today, this evening, you are standing on this truth? A true testimony ends with, begins in the past, Moves to the present and ends with, I am holding fast to this word today. So verse one and two have grabbed my attention. I wonder if they've grabbed yours. I hope they have. So the great question we ask now is, what is the truth we need to hold on to? What is the truth we need to stand upon and never let go of? And Paul tells us this, in verses 3 to 8, we come to our second point. You need to hold firmly to the gospel. And you need to hold firmly to this gospel. Because in verses 3 to 8, Paul turns to matters of what he describes of first importance. He's saying, this is what you need to hold on to. These are the things you must never let go, Christian. And it's very simple. Two simple truths. Jesus Christ died for my sins Jesus Christ rose from the dead for my salvation. Let's look at them together. First of all, Christ died for our sins, verse 3. Sin is our biggest problem. Do you know why it's the biggest problem? It separates you from God now, and it separates you from God for all of eternity. And it will lead to eternal judgments. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came to pay for our sins. He was the perfect substitute. He did not deserve to die when he was arrested by Pilate. What did Pilate declare? I find no fault in him at all. He didn't deserve to die. And yet he was arrested, he was tried, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was nailed to a cross. And as he died, he suffered and he bled for those who would believe. I mean, think of it, friends. At any moment, he could have called down a legion of angels from heaven to have stopped any of those events, but he didn't. Why? Because he needed to die. He needed to die for our sins because justice demands that sin must be atoned for. A legal trial is not complete until the judge hands out the sentence upon the guilty party. And so the great reality is either we must die for our sins or Jesus has died for our sins. That's it. Which will we choose? Will Christ die or will we face it? Francis Schaeffer once famously said, in this way, Christianity is the easiest religion in all the world. He said, in every other religion, we have to do something. There is something for us to contribute. There are works for us to do. There are things for us to, take out, for us to perform. But Christianity says, you do not do anything. God has done it. God has created us. God has sent his son into the world. The son has died. And because the son is infinite, therefore he can bear our total guilt. We do not need to bear our guilt. We do not even need to earn to be good enough to earn the goodness of Jesus that will be given to us. God does it all. And so in that way, it is the easiest religion in all the world. So why do some refuse this offer, that Christ would pay for our sins. Well, we don't refuse because it's hard to be forgiven. Let's be honest. Some refuse because we're proud and we think we should be able to fix it. Some refuse because we're stubborn and we won't truly accept that we are sinners. Some refuse because we're ashamed and we think that we deserve to face it. Friends, do not let any of those things stop you. You will have eternity to regret it if you do. Turn to Christ. Trust Jesus' death for our sins. But then, secondly, believe and trust that Christ rose from the dead. And this is what Paul turns to in verse 4. He says that Christ, having died, was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, You know when you sign up for a package online, let's say it's broadband, and you're signing up, and there's a headline price, isn't there? And it looks good value. And then you've got all what they call the optional extras. And you look down the list, and that's another £3 to have a, I don't know, an email address. (laughs) That's another £3 to have the extra cybersecurity, and that's another £3 to, to have the extra fast router. And soon, this amazing price with all the extras, doesn't look so good anymore, does it? But if you think about it, and this is my approach always, I just never go for any of them because the basic service is good enough. You still get internet. Avoid the extras. You can probably find them for free elsewhere. Well, as we come to the resurrection, what Paul is going to show us all the way through chapter 15 is the resurrection is not like one of those optional extras that you tick if you want them. The resurrection is central. It is not an optional bolt-on Because without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what does it say? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So friends, if Christ was never raised, what does that mean? It means he was a liar because he predicted it. And so it's not a fitting sacrifice because he's not perfect. It means that we can have no confidence his death was sufficient. That's one of the things Hebrews is telling us. That having offered his life, he was raised because his sacrifice was enough. And what would that mean if Jesus hadn't been raised, therefore? It would mean we are unforgiven sinners. We know we're sinners, but our sin is not dealt with. And that's a horrible thing to be. But praise God, Christ is raised from the dead. After three days... Though his body was as cold and lifeless as the stone that he was laid upon, that same Jesus, who was buried in that marked tomb with a Roman guard upon it, walked out of the tomb. He rose in the power of an endless life. He appeared to many so that we might know salvation is secure. You know, Buddha might have been an inspiring teacher for some, but when he died in 486 BC, that was the end. And one of his followers said of his death, it was an utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains. Jesus Christ was raised on the third day. His tomb is not a shrine because his body is not there. He's alive. He will never die. But how can we know? How can we know? You know, you might say, that was 2,000 years ago. That was over 2,000 miles away. How can I know this is true? Two great reasons for us. The eyewitness testimony confirms it. Look down at verses 5 to 8. We read there in those verses, 5 to 8, that Jesus appears to Cephas, that's Peter, He appears to the 12 disciples, to more than 500 at one time, to James and to all the apostles, and then finally to Paul. Now, if you do the math, that, I think, is at least 527 people, many of whom, Paul tells us, were alive when Paul is writing it. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, go and check it. You can go and ask them if they really saw the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean, friends? It means... Christianity is based upon historical events. We do not believe nice, warm ideas that make us feel better so we can sleep at night. That's not it. We believe in a saviour who physically died and physically rose from the dead. Your faith, Christian, is grounded in history. But not only that, it means that God invites us to test this claim in particular. Now, there are some claims in the Bible that we, we can't do this, but this one we can. And he says, come and test this. That's the great call of the resurrection, isn't it? And William, Ray, William Lane Craig says there are four historical realities that we have to consider. One, Jesus died and was buried. He really lived and he really died. Two, There was an empty tomb. His body was gone from the very tomb where they knew he was buried. Three, he appeared in post-resurrection appearances, the things that Paul highlights here, seen by hundreds of people. Four, the response of the disciples who did not expect that Christ would raise from the dead, who struggled to believe it when he did, and then were so convinced that they would not stop talking about it. Jesus died, the tomb was empty, he was seen by many, and they wouldn't stop speaking about it. So what do you make of it, friends? That's a question. What do you make of it this evening? If it's false, let's eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. That's what Paul says later in this chapter. If it's true, everything changes. Do you know what changes? One day, all of humanity will stand before the God of heaven. One day, God will raise all people. And we will face a physical eternity with resurrected bodies in one of two places in heaven with God, in the new heavens and the new earth in hell under judgment where are you going what's your eternal destiny because there's one hope on that day and the one hope on that day is that we have taken our stand on these truths that we have laid hold of Jesus Christ that we have stood there and we've kept on believing it's too big to pass and ignore isn't it It's too big to ignore. But not only that, not only do you have the historical events, you also have that God foretold this was happening. Now, this is something Paul wants to drive home for us here because did you notice in verses 3 and 4, the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4, there is one phrase that Paul Paul uses again and again. What does he say? According to the Scriptures. What's he pointing to there? Well, he is pointing the fact that God foretold these things centuries before they happened. Now, as I was thinking of this, the first way I described that is to say God predicted these things centuries before. But I thought, Matthew, that's not right, is it? It's not true. It's not a prediction. A prediction means that's going to happen, but not anything about it. God foretells it. What does that mean? It means God says it's going to happen, and he brings it about as true things. It's not a prediction, it's foretelling. And and God, in the Old Testament, said Jesus was going to die, Jesus was going to be raised. If you want to check out where, go to Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 11, to read about the suffering of Jesus Christ. And in those verses, there is a description of a suffering and the death of a servant who would offer himself on behalf of others. It says in verse 11 that he would bear their iniquities. It says in verse 12 that he would bear the sins of many. Now, how many years before Jesus Christ was the book of Isaiah written? Anyone want to have a guess? About, yeah, about 700 or so years. Thank you, yeah. Those words are so powerful in Isaiah 53. Go and read them later on if you want. They're so powerful that many Jews have been converted by reading them, thinking that they were descriptions of Christ on the cross. And then someone says, actually, that's not a description of Christ on the cross as it was happening. 700 years before it. It's astonishing. But not only that, you've got the death of Jesus foretold, but then you've also got the resurrection of Jesus from the dead grave. And if you want to read about that, go to Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11 where there is a faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will not see decay, who will be rescued from the realm of the dead so that he might know the path of life forever. Now, that's a Psalm of David. How many years is David before the Lord Jesus? Anyone? A thousand. About a thousand. Around there, yeah? So around a thousand. We cannot talk about the dates afterwards. But around that... Before Jesus came, you have, got a pres- you have got a foretelling, I should say, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you've got his death in Isaiah 53, you've got his resurrection in Psalm 16. And remember, these are not Christian scriptures that are being pointed to. These are the Jewish scriptures that are ours as God's people as well. They have been carefully Copied, widely distributed, and memorized right across the ancient world. So it is not that Christians have got hold of the Old Testament and put these things in there. That wouldn't happen because they were widely embraced and received by the Jews. And yet, the the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is there being foretold. So, what do you make of that, friends? That's my question tonight. You You and I cannot foretell the events of tomorrow. Think about it. Go home tonight and write down big things that will happen tomorrow. I'm not talking about what you're going to eat for breakfast, because you have some control over that, don't you? Write down what you think will happen in your life tomorrow. It's not going to work, is it? Write down what you think will happen in Leamington tomorrow. Write down what you think will happen across the world tomorrow. We can't do it, can we? And that's just tomorrow. If any of us could, we'd be billionaires tomorrow, wouldn't we? But the eternal God, who is outside of time, planned these historical events of Jesus' work of salvation and resurrection. And he wrote them down centuries before they happened so that we might understand the significance of them and not miss how life transforming they are, securing eternity for those who will believe. So, coming back to where we began. Where will you take your stand, friends? Remember what's at stake. Eternal life. Verse one. Hear it, receive it, take your stand upon it. But also, verse two. Make sure you are holding firmly to this truth. That you may not believe in vain. But there's one final thing we need to come to because Paul finally addresses something that might stop us from doing that this evening. And that's what he comes to in verses 8 through to 11. Because maybe we hold back from trusting in Jesus because perhaps of the sin, the mountain of sin that we have committed. And we see in verses 8 to 11 something of the grace of God. Let's have our third point. God's grace is sufficient. If you look in verse 8, having gone through all the different references to different people who Jesus appeared to, he says, James and the apostles, and then verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me as one who was abnormally born. Paul's saying he was one of the last eyewitnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. Now, his spiritual birth was abnormal because he is the least likely person you would think will become a Christian. Because before Paul was called Paul, he was called Saul. And Saul was one of the most active persecutors of Christians. He arranged for the stoning of some of Jesus' followers. He says in verse 9, I persecuted the church of God. I hated Jesus. I hated his people. I wanted nothing to do with them. But what did God do? Verse 10. But the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am What I am. God's grace worked in Paul's life to save him. And maybe Paul is thinking here of here of this mountain of sin that he knows he's committed. Of all the wrong that he did in his life and and towards Christ and towards his people. And what does he see? He sees that God has forgiven him. Friends, we all have our own mountains of sin. Maybe you're aware of yours this evening. If God's grace could extend to Paul, God's grace can extend to you if you will believe, no matter how high that mountain might be. Don't let your sin hold you back. Come to Jesus. His cross, his blood is sufficient for your sin, however great. But then also, one final thing, perhaps you are a follower of Jesus and you think, verse 1, I've done all that, I have res- I've heard about Christ and his death and resurrection, I've received it in agreeing with it, I've embraced it by faith, I've taken my stand upon it. But the thing that's really hard for me is the middle of verse 2 if you hold firmly to the word that was preached to you. Holding firm, that's my struggle. Maybe you think, well, I don't have it in me. I I, I can barely hold on. There are times when I feel I might let go. I have doubts because of things in my life personally. I have doubts because of hard situations around me. I just don't think I have it in me to keep hold. Where's the hope here? Well, I want you to see the encouragement of verse 10. Because, by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying there, you're a Christian by the grace of God. You're saved by the grace of God. But also, God's grace continues to work in your life as it did in the life of Paul, such that that grace works in you that you work hard to keep hold. What's the lesson? The fact that you and I keep going is a work of God's sustaining grace. We work because that work of God is in us. Isn't that hopeful? God's grace works in every believer, so that He gives us the strength that we need to hold on as hard as we need to hold. Whatever's happening in our life around us or within us. Reminds me the story the story that Cory Temboon's father told her. She was they, as a family, were sheltering Jews from the Nazis in the Netherlands. And she said to her dad, Dad, I'm really concerned one time that I just won't have the grace to keep on trusting in Jesus. If the soldiers come and they take me away and they put me under pressure, will I, will I stand firm? And he, he said to her, Corrie, when you're going to go on a train journey, when do I give you the ticket? And she said, Dad, oh, it's just before I get on the train, isn't it? He said, yeah, just before you get on the train. And he said, Corrie, so God will also give you the special grace that you need to keep going just when you need it and not before. God gives grace to his people such that we stand firm and we hold fast. That's the confidence of God's people in life and in death. That's why God's grace is so precious because it works in us to keep us holding on. That's why the hymn writer William Gatsby at his death said, one phrase, three times, free grace, free grace, free grace. And friends, when our momentary lives are done, when eternity is before us, those who have stood on these things will not have believed in vain. Those who have held fast to these truths will be holding fast by the grace of God. And so our testimony will be, verse 10, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Amen. So our Father God, we give you our thanks and praise for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died for our sins, that he has risen from the grave, that he is a living saviour. He lives today. Oh, how we praise you for our risen saviour. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear this truth, to receive this truth, to take our stand upon these truths and to ever hold fast to these things. And we pray them confident in your grace and in your mercy. Amen.